and thanks for sharing some of those announcements with us. One of the announcements I know um, that you had mentioned kind of towards the end was the, um, the gig the gig event um, where, you know, us as a fellowship um, will have some time to spend uh, with uh, some of the 50-plus saints um, that are in our church. And, you know, just kind of thinking about that announcement and just kind of as we work through our series here about stewardship, you know, I think it would be a great opportunity for us as we get to know them and they get to know us. Um, you know, it would be, I think, a great encouragement for you um, if you're able to, you know, when you speak to uh, some of our saints, uh, just learn from them. You know, there are people that have, you know, walked this earth uh, longer than us, but they've also walked it very wisely and skillfully. And, you know, they can teach us a lot about, you know, how we can steward our lives in the different areas. Um, tonight we'll be talking about time. You can ask them, you know, just you know, maybe what, you know, things went well for them when, you know, they were in the same situations that you were in, you know, maybe finishing school or, you know, starting your career, getting married, thinking about kids, you know, maybe, you know, how, you know, they use their time and maybe, you know, maybe some things that worked well and maybe not so well. And, you know, it's just a rare opportunity that uh, we're going to be together, you know, just us two fellowships, and so I would encourage you, if you are able, uh, to go and to really uh, make use of the time. Um, you know, there is uh, a lot of wisdom in that fellowship, and uh, it's a lot of wisdom that we can gain, uh, so um, you know, I would encourage you with that. Uh, so uh, before we begin, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They have fallen asleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward the evening, it fades and withers away. As for our days of our life, they are counted 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, some of you guys uh, might be familiar with the name Robert Murray McShane. Um, if you are, you most likely know him from a Bible reading plan that is uh, under his name. It's a plan that he devised to encourage people to spend more time in the Word. Uh, McShane, he was a Scottish pastor and evangelist of uh, the early to mid-1800s. Uh, he was born in Scotland in, in May of 1813 to a rather successful family. 
And according to his biography, he entered college in 1827, uh, where he spent the first years of his study uh, studying poetry and public speaking. Um, but he also spent a lot of his time in a lot of uh, worldly endeavors. Um, he enjoyed some of the local pleasures that were around his area, which included uh, playing cards, dancing, music. Uh, but it wasn't until his older brother died of a stroke in 1831 when McShane was about 17 or 18. Uh, it was then that he was awakened to saving faith. And so for the next four years, he prepared to study for a life of ministry at his university. And then he graduated in 1835 and then entered the ministry at the age of 22. And one of his last journal entries as a student was entered as this. It says, March 29th, 1835, college finished on Friday last, my last appearance there. Life is vanishing fast, make haste for eternity. McShane became well-known in his local area of ministry um, for his passion and his persuasion of the loss and his tireless dedication uh, to growing in his own personal holiness. But unfortunately, uh, he experienced a number of illnesses during his ministry. And after battling uh, a violent fever for about a week, uh, which had spread much across uh, most of his town, uh, he died on March 25th, 1843. And he was 29. He was 29. Though he's perhaps well-known to us now, um, he was not a man of great renown in his time. Um, after all, his ministry really lasted only about seven years. But yet, a good number of his sermons and letters, along with the Bible reading plan that he developed, uh, have been preserved and has inspired and encouraged believers for the past 200 years and even today. And so as we continue our stewardship series, uh, our topic tonight uh, is going to be about uh, time. Uh, God's Word teaches us a lot about time, and um, we're going to go over uh, two passages, uh, two main passages of, our, uh, of Scripture that hopefully will encourage us to use our time wisely. The words of um, a young McShane will provide the framework for our outline tonight. So first, um, the first point would be life is vanishing fast. Life is vanishing fast. Uh, then second, uh, make haste for eternity. Uh, so those would be our two main points for today. Now our primary text in this section uh, is going to be found in Psalm 39. Uh, Psalm 39. Uh, so I encourage you to turn there, uh, Psalm 39, and we're going to go over the psalm into four different parts. Uh, the first part um, is the background, uh, that's verses 1 through 3. Uh, the second uh, will be the reality of time, uh, the reality of time, uh, that's verses 4 and 5. Uh, third, or letter C, uh, this will be the lessons of time, uh, that's verses 6 to 11. 
And then lastly, I'd be here for the redemption of time, verses 12 and 13. So A, the background, then the reality of time, uh, the lessons of time, and then lastly, the redemption of time. Um, so I'll start. Uh, we'll just read as we, as we go along. Um, so Psalms 39, uh, this is verses 1 through 3. This is Psalm 39, uh, Psalm of David, and it starts, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then... I spoke with my tongue. Now, we're not really given uh, any specific details uh, regarding the circumstances surrounding the psalm. Uh, we know that in David's life, he experienced his fair share of grief and distress. Uh, but whatever was troubling him when he wrote this, it sounds like it was pretty bad. We read that he has to hold back from even speaking because if he did, whatever he said, there was a good chance that it was going to be sinful. You can feel like there's this inner turmoil inside of him. Like he doesn't want to say how he feels because he knows that maybe what he feels just doesn't seem right. And not only that, he also says that the wicked are in his presence. He has to guard what he says because he doesn't want to risk the wicked hearing what he wants to say. Because if they did, they might hear David say something that they would interpret as maybe a sense of distrust or maybe a sense of disloyalty that David might have with God. So David, uh, here in his anguish, he is resolute in guarding his tongue that he doesn't, he says that he doesn't even speak at all. And the longer he fights to keep silent, the worse he feels. And in verse 2, David says, and it's translated in a few different ways, including um, sorrow or anguish, or literally, it's like his pain grew worse. Right? The longer he kept silent, his pain is just growing worse. And then verse 3, he says, it starts to compound because he thinks about it more. He says the more he meditates on it, the, he starts to get hot and he starts to burn, right? which you can probably tell suggests that you know, there's maybe um, anger growing inside of him. Right? The more he thinks about it, it's almost like the angrier, the more upset he gets. And so we see that as David starts this psalm, he starts by guarding his tongue, right? We use the phrase, right? We say, like, biting your tongue, right? We bite our tongue when we, there's something that we really want to say, but we probably shouldn't, so we bite our tongue. And it's like the longer that David tries to bite his tongue or the harder he bites his tongue, he's going to bite it right off. I mean, his own silence is killing him, it seems like. But then in verse 3, it's like he can't hold it in any longer, right? It's like a pot that continues to boil over and over. And so then he says at the end of verse 3, he says, Then I spoke 
with my tongue. Now, for many of us, if we're in a situation that's similar to David, right, where we are under maybe some of life's difficulties or, you know, there's troubles just building up inside of us and we're holding it in and we get perhaps angrier and angrier. Perhaps it's, you know, perhaps this anger might be directed at someone, right? Perhaps it's a friend, coworker, roommate, husband, right? And the anger just continues to boil over and boil over, but you don't want to say anything because the moment you speak, it's probably not going to be good. And so this might be kind of how David is feeling where, you know, he is just boiling over, but then he starts to speak. And, you know, we can imagine, we can probably just brace ourselves for what he's about to say, because if that were us, you can imagine if we were really, I mean, you can just think about the last time you were really angry and you were just holding it in, but then you decided to say something. And it's like you can't take it anymore, so you start to speak. Well, you know, the words that follow, you know, they're probably not the most, or they're not the, you know, edifying or sanctifying variety, right? They are the probably not safe for church type of variety, the not safe for any occasion kind of variety. And oftentimes when we experience hardships or trials, right, it's easy to be, it's easy, well, we can easily be tempted to find ourselves Right, focusing on those circumstances, right? Our view of our suffering becomes maybe very anthrocentric, right? We, we are thinking about just ourselves, right? Our world, our thinking, everything shifts to us being the center of the universe, right? And it's very tempting to look for the world for solutions, um, but when we think about whatever temporal gain the world has to offer, um, you know, we think that maybe that will fix our trials, but we can surely appreciate the wisdom that, and really the restraint that David shows, because once he decides to open his mouth, once he decides to speak, he decides to pray. Right? And his prayer to God is, teach me. Right? In the midst of his suffering, he says to God, teach me. And to deal with his pain, we have his inspired answer, and that's in verses 4 and 5. And it reads this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Right? How do we make, or how does David make sense of what's happening, right? And how, do, how does he navigate the turmoil that's boiling inside him? Right? And for us, how can we learn how to see things from a theocentric point of view, right? How do we see things from God's point of view, right? The answer in these verses brings us to uh, our second point, uh, which is the reality of time. We are taught the reality of time, and that reality 
is that life is indeed vanishing fast. Teach me, David says, how short life is. He wants to know what is my end, right? What is the extent of my days? And in verse 5, we find out, according to God, just how short life really is. Right? He says, our days are as handbreadths. Right? Well, what's a handbreadth? Um, well, in David's time, a handbreadth was like the smallest uh, unit of measurement. Right? It's about the width of uh, the palm, so like kind of like the breadth of your hand. So it's probably about a few inches maybe. Um, but it was the smallest unit of measurement in their day. Um, so in our day, um, the smallest unit of measurement is probably something far beyond microscopic. Um, you can probably search to find what the smallest unit measurement is today, and whatever you find, that's how short your life is. Um, but for the sake of familiarity, uh, we might say in our day that you know our life is like an inch or maybe a millimeter, right? basically as small or as short as you can think of. You know, but it's hard sometimes to quantify eternity uh, and how to measure something against eternity, um, but we'll try. Uh, so imagine you are driving from here to, let's say, hmm, Southern California, okay? Uh, and sometimes that can feel like an eternity, right? Especially if there's traffic or you have kids or both, then eternity seems pretty accurate. Um, but let's say, let's say we're going from 401 Terravel here and let's say we are driving to, let's say, Disneyland, okay? It's about, I think about 400 miles maybe. I think some of you will correct me and say, no, it's 414. Okay, right, 414, okay. Like, but you get in your car, right? You turn on the engine and you start to drive and you move an inch, right? You move an inch and then you stop. And that's as far as you get. That's it, right? Well, you would say, you really didn't go anywhere, right? Compared to how far you needed to go, right? That's nothing. And that's what David says, right? He says, my lifetime is nothing. My lifetime is as nothing in your sight, right? Compared to an eternal God, our days truly are nothing. Uh, listen to what Moses has to say. Uh, Moses, in Psalm 90, uh, in Psalm 90, verses 2 to 6, right? He says, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn mortals back into dust and say, return, you sons of mankind, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday. When it passes by or like a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass that sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards the evening, it wilts and withers away. 
Moses describes man's life uh, like, a, like something that just gets wiped out in a flood. Back in Israel, there's these kind of like these ravines, and you know when it rains, it's well, it's usually dry, and then when it rains, uh, the water just floods right through, and it just kind of it's like a flash flood, it just wipes out everything that's in its way, and that's what man's life is like, just wiped away in an instant, Uh, and then he compares it to to grass, right, which grows in the day, and then by nighttime, it just withers away. Similarly, Job compares man to a flower that quickly withers. And James calls life a vapor, right? It's here for a little while, then vanishes away. And sometimes that's hard to believe, right? Sometimes it's hard to believe that life is so brief, right? There are probably examples in your life where it feels like life or time does not seem to move, right? And today, today is, it was kind of like, it was kind of a warm day, right? So perhaps you decided to get a drink. And so you go make your way to the store. And, you know, it's probably, since it's a warm day, maybe a lot of other people are thinking what you're thinking and you're expecting a line. So you get there and, hey, no line, right? And like a good citizen, you order your drink on your phone so that it'll be ready by the time you get there. And you're there, and there's only one person in front of you, and you are thrilled, right? You are thrilled because everything is working out according to plan. But this person in front of you is staring into this staring into the menu, and it looks like they're just staring into oblivion, and you're just waiting. And so they engage in conversation with the, you know, with the, the person at the store, and it just goes on and on, and it is a full exposition on black tea versus green tea, and oh, it's, what's the difference between number one and number two? And as you're there, it just seems like forever, and you see your drink, and it's right there. It's right there. It's ready. Water beating all over the edges, ice melting, and you are no closer to your drink than you were five minutes ago. It doesn't seem like five minutes, because it seems like forever, because this guy doesn't know what he wants, and then, and then, in the ultimate betrayal, he just says, then after conversing with the man for what seems like an eternity about the merits of number one and number two, he just says, I will take number nine, something totally different. And then what size does it come in? What's the difference between large and small, medium and small? It seems like an eternity, but in reality, it was only a few minutes. Is time not moving, right? Is, is, is time slow? Uh, in that case, no, right? It's, it's just us being impatient. Right? There are other times, though, where time seems to move slowly. Right? And other times, 
It can be times of pain or times of trials. Right? David felt this many times, and in Psalm 13, right, he says, How long, O Lord? Right? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Right? Three times in the first two verses, he says, How long? Right? And so in some degree, when we're suffering, or it's sadness or loneliness, right? but whatever it is, Right, that seems to make time or our trials last so long. Right? It just feels like time just isn't moving. But if that's you right now, just be reminded as David has that time is in fact moving and it is moving fast. There's an expression um, that's used in parenting and uh, it has been, I think, taken from uh, an author and self-help person of sorts and in some form or another, it says, the days are long, but the years are short. Right? The days are long, but the years are short. Right? It feels that way. Right? The days feel that way because maybe every day there can be a whole host of challenges that we face. Things that make each day a struggle. Right? For parents, it could be right, the baby just does not stop crying. The baby doesn't want to eat, he doesn't sleep, he gets, he's getting sick, right? And each day seems like it doesn't end, right? And then when it finally does, it just starts over again, right? But before you know it, right, they're not a baby anymore. The kid grows up and he's off to school, right? He finishes school and just like that, right? 20 years, 25 years, gone, right? If if maybe you can think back to maybe a time from your childhood that you can vividly remember, right? Maybe it's a family vacation or a Christmas celebration. Maybe it was a school event, right? You look back in those moments and, you know, what's the expression? It feels like what, right? It feels like yesterday, right? It just feels like yesterday. But in reality, you know, that was 15, 20 years ago. And now here you are, right? You know, you guys, the average age of you guys, I don't know, maybe 25, 26, right? The prime of your life. But that also means that for most of you, that about a third of your life is already gone. For some of you, it might be a little bit more. For some of us, it might be a little bit less. And yes, you are still in the prime of your life, and yes, you still likely have a lot of years left. But as you live these years of your prime, just remember, right, in James 4.14, 4, it says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Right, verse 5 in Psalm 39 ends this way. He says, Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, right? Or that can be translated at his best, can be translated as standing firm, right? So surely um, every man at his best or every man standing firm is a mere breath, right? He adds the word surely there, right? That stresses some sort of like, it's like an emphatic truth, right? Obviously it's true, but he wants to make sure that it is emphasized. So he says, surely Every man is a mere breath. 
right? So even in our prime, when we are at the peak of our strength, we are merely just a breath. And then at the end of verse 5, he puts in right, a break, right? He says, there's a break. It says, Salah, right? As if he has intentionally put this pause in this psalm so that everyone who reads it or everyone who sings it must reflect on this thought that we are all but just a breath. Right? That's the reality of time. Right? So we've seen in verses 4 and 5, the reality of time. In verses 6 through 11, as we read, give us some lessons on time, right? That's our next session, section, the lessons of time. Verses 6 to 11 read like this. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar from nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. David continues where he leaves off, right? Just like man is a mere breath, he compares man to a phantom or a shadow, right? We walk around this world, and before you know it, right, we vanish, right? No imprint, no footprint, we're just gone. And then he explains that your life may be full of commotion, maybe even full of turmoil, and what does it amount to? It amounts to nothing. Right? And then lastly, in verse 6, he says that we worked so hard to obtain all this wealth, but we don't even know where it's going to go. Right? You work so hard, you collect so much, but in a mere breath or a blink of an eye, it's going to be all gone. Right? What happens to it? Who knows? Right? That word breath that you see there uh, so often, and you see it in the end of verse 5, it's also translated in other places as vanity, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? That's how the book of Ecclesiastes opens, right? It's all but a breath, right? And as David is examining the frailty of life, right, he sees that it amounts to nothing, right? When Solomon was writing Ecclesiastes, right, it seems like he has the same idea, Right, in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19, he says, So I hated the fruit of my labor, for which I labored under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will have control over the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is futility, he says. So as we try to think about some lessons on time that we can gather in these verses. Uh, here is one that we can take with us. That is, time is too short 
to focus on worldly pursuits. Okay? Time is too short to focus on worldly pursuits. You know, Solomon spent a significant portion of his life right, testing out all the various pleasures and pursuits that the world had to offer, right? And Solomon, as probably the most powerful and wealthiest man in the world at his time, and maybe even in history, right, he could experience all that the world could offer in the highest degree. And in the end, he concludes that it was all vanity, right? All the breath, right? So much of Solomon's time was probably wasted when all he had to do was look right here, right? Look right here, right? Look to the words of his father. And he could have come to the same conclusion, right? And in the end, what happened to all of Solomon's power and wealth, right? It was given to his son, and his son tore the kingdom apart. Right? And you consider what had happened before, right? I mean, you have David and then Solomon, right? David rules for 40 years, Solomon for maybe about 40 years, right? So 80 years, right? David and Solomon, by God's grace, have built the nation of Israel into the nation that God had intended it to be, right? David had secured the kingdom, he had established the capital, and he had set Israel on the path of greatness. Then comes Solomon, and in his wisdom, right, he helped make Israel rich, prosperous. Right? The temple is built. Right? This is the peak of Israel. And then Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king. His son. Right? And just like David had warned, just as Solomon has concluded, right, who knows what will happen right, to your wealth? It may go to someone wise or it may go to a fool. You just don't know. And in their case, right, Rehoboam acted as a fool. Right? 80 years, right? Rehoboam's father and grandfather had built this kingdom, the likes of which Israel has never seen. And almost in an instant, in his foolishness, he tears it apart. Right? All that work, 80 years, all gone, right? because someone acted foolishly. Right? Why pile up riches when you don't know who will gather them? Our encouragement is to not be tempted to chase the things that this world values, right? The world will tell you, the world will tell you that you have to have money, that you need to look a certain way, that you need to have certain things in order to be happy or for your life to have meaning. And to an extent, right, they're right, right? I mean, for the world, All they have, right? All they have is this life, right? They have only this one breath to enjoy. And then after this breath is complete, right, as Hebrew says, for them comes judgment. But for you, the believer, once your breath is complete, for you comes glory. 
1 John 2, 15 to 17 reads this. John says, Do not love the world nor the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. Our first lesson is that time is too short to live for worldly pursuits. The second lesson we can learn in these verses, then, not only is time too short to focus on worldly pursuits, but time is too short to contend with God. Time is too short to contend with God. In these verses, David reveals the reason for his troubles, right? Remember that in the beginning of the psalm, David reveals that he is under some kind of distress, right? He is in trouble. He is in pain. And so he comes to realize that life is too short, right? And hope can't be found in this life, right? Time isn't going to fix his, tri- his troubles, strength isn't going to fix his troubles, wealth isn't going to fix it. So he declares that his only hope is in the Lord. And we come to see that the suffering that David is experiencing here is the result of sin. We don't know what he did, um, but we do know that as a result, right, God has put his hand against him. Right? David says that it is you who have done it. David is wasting away, as he says, because he is in opposition to God, because he has sinned against God. And so he comes to understand that all of this is God's discipline upon him. Now, of course, not all trials or suffering is the result of God's discipline or because of, you know, our sin. But here in David's case, it is very clear. David sees it. David accepts it, and he repents because he wants to be right with God, right? He wants to be close to him, right? Life for David is too short to be striving against God. In Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, it reads, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his rebuke. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. We must see as believers as God's discipline on us as a very loving and merciful thing coming from God. If there are things that are standing in the way between us and God, we ought to encourage each other to put those aside. And if we can't, then, as David says, then, we let God consume them. Right? God wants what's best for us. And what is best for us, as the author of Hebrews says, is holiness. Right? In Hebrews 12, 10, and 11, he says, But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
right? We ought not to live the few years that we have here on this earth in sin and contending with God, right? But we ought to strive to live lives that bear, as the author of Hebrews says, bear the fruit of righteousness. Our great example, one of our great examples uh, when it comes to contending against God and not heeding the discipline of God Right, are the Israelites. Right, we go through, we're going through numbers on Sunday, right, and that's their story. Right? They are living under the discipline of God. But instead of being trained by it, right, be, instead of being brought closer to holiness, right, they continue to contend against God. Right? They continue to sin. Right? Their trip across the desert probably should have taken maybe two weeks, two weeks, give or take, but it took them, what, 40 years, 40 years in the desert. That first generation could have happily lived in the promised land, living as Moses in Deuteronomy puts it, right? They could have lived in cities that they didn't build, living in homes filled with things that they did not fill, drinking from wells that they didn't have to dig, eating from trees and vineyards that they didn't have to plant. But instead, they wandered and they wandered and they wandered. And then they were buried in the desert. Why? Right? It's because they continued to contend with God. They continued to turn away when God was correcting them. Right? Turning back to Psalm 90, you know, Moses says in verses 8 through 10, he says to God, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days have declined in your fury. You have finished our years like a sigh. As for... The days of our life, they are contained 70 years or due strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for it is gone and we fly away. And Moses says that as a result of God's discipline on his people, they ended their days not in joy, which they could have had, but they ended it merely in a sigh. And that's surely no way for anyone to live. So this section uh, of David's psalm in Psalm 39, uh, it ends just like before, right? He says in verse, the last part of verse 11, surely, again, surely every man is a mere breath. And then just like before, right? Selah, another pause, right? Another time for us to reflect on the brevity of life, right? Life is only a breath, so how will you choose to spend it? For us, brothers and sisters, life is too short to be living in sin, right? Life is too short to be contending with God. And then lastly, the last two verses, uh, verses 12 and 13, um, we can learn how we can redeem the time, right? The redemption of time, verses 12 and 13. 
And there it reads, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So how should we live with the small amount of time that we have? One way we can live is that we can live in dependence on God. Live in dependence of God, on God. Right? We depend on God, and that's how we should live. In verse 12, David is throwing himself at the mercy of God. Right? He knows that it's vanity to find hope in anything else. Right? Right? Vanity to find hope in, well, find hope in strength, find hope in the time that he has. So just like he says in verse 7, my hope is in you. Right? He declares his hope in God. Right? And verse 12 continues, and he compares himself to, he says, a stranger or a sojourner. Right? And you understand that in Israel's law, right, foreigners were granted certain provisions that would sustain them if they were just passing by or if they were to live in the land for a short period or a certain amount of time, right? And one such example of such a law, as you guys might be familiar with, is that when the, that the people of Israel, when they harvested their crops, right, they were to leave the edges unharvested so that people like the foreigner and the sojourner could have something to eat. If you remember, uh, right, the story of Ruth, right, David's grandmother, great-grandmother, um, she was a foreigner, right, and that's what she did, right? She gleaned the fields after the reapers had harvested the fields, right? So much like the foreigner or the sojourner, right, depended on the mercy of the inhabitants of the land, right? So too, David, as a sojourner, ought to depend on God. Right? Another lesson that we learn, uh, or that we can learn on how to redeem our time here on this earth, uh, taken again from that same verse, right? not only do we live depending on God, but we also live like a stranger. Right? Not only does not only as a stranger does David rely on God, right, uh, upon whose land he's passing through, but he's also, uh, but as a stranger or a sojourner, right, this isn't his real home. Now, if anyone can call Israel home, right, it's David, right, he was their king. You could say that he was one that built this nation, Right? God even told him that his family would rule this nation forever. Uh, but David knows where his true home is. Right? And he wrote about it before. Right? And he knows that his home is in the house of the Lord where he would dwell forever or where he will dwell forever. Right? So too then should we. Right? We ought to live in this life just as if we're passing through. We don't need to invest so much right, in a place where we will only be for just a short while. 
And lastly, uh, in order to redeem our time, um, we ought to live and be at peace with God. And be at peace with God. In verse 13, David is pleading for God to turn, right? He says, he's asking God to turn his gaze away from him, right? And we see that kind of language, right? Whether it's God's gaze on someone or his eyes being directed at someone, it's usually typical of a representation of God's judgment or perhaps God's discipline, right? You don't want God's eyes on you. And when they are, that means that you are perhaps in judgment or in discipline. So David is asking God to turn his gaze away, right? To remove the discipline from him. Right? Then David says, right, then he can say, I can smile again or become cheerful again. And if you live life well, right, or if you want to live life well, right, you want to be at peace with God. You don't want to be in contention with him. You don't want to be pursuing things other than him. Otherwise, the short life that's as hard as it is will be even harder, right? And that's no way to live. So I hope that as we have gone through this psalm, we can have an appreciation of McShane's words when he says that life is indeed vanishing fast. And so we look now to another encouragement that he provides, and that is to make haste for eternity. Okay, this is our second uh, point for tonight is uh, we ought to make haste for eternity. Now, our text for this section uh, will be 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 10, uh, and I'll read it, um, but I will read it starting in verses, our chapter 4, verse 16. So we'll be reading 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 5, 9 to 10. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and 
prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, this is verses 9 and 10, therefore we have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. A lot of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul defending his ministry, right? And in doing so, he explains that the reason why he's willing to endure whatever persecution or suffering or even death is because it is for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And he says, for he considers all of that just light momentary affliction. He is willing to give himself up as a sacrifice because he is pursuing something that is far greater, right? He is pursuing eternal glory, right? But the challenge is that right, we see the temporal, we cannot see the eternal, right? We see what's in front of us, right? We see the trials, we see the temptations, but we need to look past the temporal and we need to look into the eternal, right? So we make haste for eternity, because that is where true glory lies. Right? And to help us further understand the transient nature of our being, the Apostle Paul compares this life and this body to a tent. Right? And as you know, a tent right, isn't designed to be any kind of permanent residence. Right? It's a shelter that's meant to provide right, the bare minimum of protection. Right? It can be taken apart, it can be moved at any time, right? A tent is meant for someone who is a sojourner, someone who is a traveler, someone like David, right? Someone like Paul, someone like us. But he says, Paul says that there is a greater dwelling from God, eternal in the heavens, right? That's our permanent home, right? Where we will be clothed, glory for eternity, and it is for that we make haste. And with eternal perspective, we can agree with Paul that it is better to be in that eternal dwelling than our earthly tent. But either way, Paul says that in verse 9, either way, right, he provides to us what ought to be our ambition, and that is to be pleasing to God. And if you want to use your time wisely, let your focus be this. You focus your time on pleasing Him. And you focus your time being pleasing to the Lord. And that may not be as easy as it seems, right? For, as you know, it's very easy to be caught up striving to get to the next stage in your life, right? That's the temporal. That's what you can see, right? That's what we all see, right? right? And if we're not careful, we will be consumed living by sight, right? We will only see what's next. We will only see what's in the moment. And that will become the most important thing for us, or that can become the most important thing for us, right? It could be finishing school, it could be starting your career, it could be getting married, 
could be having kids, could be retiring, right? You know, all these things are great, and we, of course, can use and should use these times to be pleasing to God. But we don't live for those moments, right? We live for this one. Verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Right? If you want to set your sights on something to live for, set your sights on this. Right? Set your sights on this moment. If you want to live for a moment, this is the moment that you ought to live for. Right? We are all going to appear before, as he says, the judgment seat of Christ and receive our due for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. Right? This judgment seat that Paul is referring to uh, is a commonly used platform in their time where a judge would preside to deliver a verdict. Or it was also used by authorities who presided over athletic events um, where they would be there uh, to pass out rewards for the victors. And so too, we as Christians will appear before this, uh, this judgment seat, before Christ. Um, but you know, we also understand that this judgment, it's not punitive, right? Uh, this judgment is not punitive uh, because the judge that's in that seat has already paid our price. But it's more of an evaluation of your life. Right? And in this short time that we have, right, this is your chance to please and honor him. Right? This is your only chance to please and honor him. Right? Once this life is over, then that's it. You don't want to waste your time investing in a tent when you can be investing in a mansion, right? Don't be so tempted to spend your life chasing the treasures of this world, right? Treasures that will last a mere breath where something so small like moths or rust can destroy. Right? You live for a treasure that is eternal, right? one that cannot be taken away by moth or rust or thieves, or for that matter, it cannot be taken away by any kind of tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or death or life or angels or principalities or things present or things to come or powers or heights or depths or any other created thing. You know, one of McShane's influences, one of his greatest influences, was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And even though they were oceans away, Edwards' words had a profound influence on a young McShane. Right in Jonathan Edwards was known for many things, not the least of which were his famous resolutions. Right? Perhaps some of these resolutions made their mark on McShane himself. And if you are looking to perhaps be a better steward of your time, uh, you can maybe consider some of these resolutions. 
this is resolution number five of Jonathan Edwards, and he says, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Right? Never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I never do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Now, this is number 17. Resolved that I will live so that so I will, that I will live so as I wish I had done when I come to die. Right? I live so as I wish that I had done when I come to die. And here's one last one. Resolved never to do anything for which I should be afraid to do if I expected it to not be above in an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. McShane died in 1843, and in one of his letters that he wrote um, a couple years before he died, uh, he wrote this. He said, live for eternity. A few days more and our journey is done. Right? Live for eternity. A few more days and our journey is done. Let's pray. Um, dear God, you have taught us that our life is short. It is a breath. And before we know it, our life will be over. So we pray that you would allow us a heart of wisdom, that you would teach us to number our days. And in those number of days, you will teach us how we ought to live. We ought to live a life that is pleasing to you. We ought not to live a life full of sin, a life full of contention with you, our Father. We ought not to live it pursuing the things of this world. But in our little time here, even for this little bit, that we would be pleasing to you. So that when we appear before your Son, when we are before him, that we would be pleased because we know that we have pleased you, and he will be pleased with us. We don't need to live life we don't need to put our hopes in a tent, something so fragile, something that can be so easily taken away, but we live for and we look forward to the eternal dwelling that you have prepared for us. And so we live as if this life is vanishing fast, and Lord, we will make haste for eternity to be with you. In your son's name we pray, amen.